you haven't already, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 39. Last Sunday, in verses 19 through 25, we were reminded of three of the privileges that had been availed to us as New Covenant Christians. And we were urged to embrace these last week. Firstly, we were urged to go before God confidently in prayer. Under the old covenant, only the high priest could go before God and only once a year, and he could never do so confidently. But now, under the new covenant in Christ, we can go before God whenever we want wherever we are and we can be fully assured that God hears our prayers because we are his blood-bought sons and daughters. Secondly, last Sunday, we were urged to hold fast to the good news of the new covenant. By repentant faith in the resurrected Son of God, we really have been made holy by God and we really are being made holy by God. <laughs> Jesus' blood really has fully cleansed us of our sins, past, present, and future. And our faithful God will finish what he has started in us. Thirdly, last Sunday, we were urged to not neglect the church. We were urged to not neglect what we're doing right now. The local church is not a building that we sit in. The local church is not a show that we attend. The local church is not a social club that we participate in when convenient. The local church is a family of saints who have been bought, sought, and brought together by Christ we are to gather. We are to serve and to stir up one another. We are to encourage one another toward genuine love and godly living. And we are to strengthen one another to persevere unto the end and to endure until Christ returns. Now, what exactly? What exactly are we to endure what threats or dangers are we to withstand and to overcome together? Well, I'm really glad that you asked because uh, the writer of Hebrews is not done writing this letter. And so let's turn to our passage, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 39. But I'm actually going to start reading at verse 24 just to provide a, a tiny bit of context. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now here's our passage. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. 
Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, Do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and and preserve their souls. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Oh, Father... By your most Holy Spirit, we ask that you would teach us, preach to our hearts your most holy word that we have just read, that it would read us out, and that your Holy Spirit would fill us in, conforming us, Lord, to the likeness of your most holy Son, Jesus, by whom we belong to you, through whom we will endure to the end. And for whom is glory now and forevermore in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Throughout world history, when kingdoms and nations have found themselves in times of peace, the wise and prudent kingdoms, they don't call off their watchmen and they don't let down their guard. Instead, they remain vigilant and watchful. They stand ready to take action against and endure through any potential threats. And the same must be true for all true believers and followers of Christ. One of the things that we might notice in this passage, and there are many, but one of the things we might notice is that the writer of Hebrews is essentially calling his Jewish Christian audience, the the Jewish Christians were the first to receive this letter. He was writing this letter to them. He's, He's urging them, he's calling them and us to the task of endurance. Endurance is in view here. 
There are two great threats to living the Christian life and finishing the Christian life well. I would argue that there are no two greater threats to our faith than these. The internal threat of our own sin and the external threat of persecution and affliction. Two things that we see in this passage. As new covenant Christians, number one, we must treat our sin seriously. And number two, we must face affliction faithfully. That'll be our outline for the remainder of this time. And that outline actually divides this, this portion in, in, into two parts. Number one, we must treat our sin seriously. Number two, we must face affliction faithfully or we should at least prepare, prepare to face affliction faithfully. Number one, we must treat our sin seriously. Verse 26, for if we go on sinning deliberately, if we go on knowingly, remorselessly, running headlong down the path of sin, even after we've come to understand the forgiveness and freedom of Christ, if we go on sinning deliberately, even after a knowledge of this, there isn't a sacrifice in the cosmos that will cover such mockery. Christ's blood won't atone for that. Instead, verse 27, there is only the fearful guarantee of God's impending judgment. And that looks like this, a fury of fire that will consume all enemies of the cross. Even under the old covenant, the writer of Hebrews explains in verse 27, when anyone was caught setting aside the law of Moses, they were put to death without mercy. And so, how much worse punishment under the far more glorious new covenant that has been ratified by the blood of God's Son, how much worse punishment should be expected by those who trample on and profane the blood that perfects sinners. To do so is an outrage against the Spirit the Holy Spirit of grace. And he will have his day of vengeance. 31, it is a fearful thing to play fast and loose and callous with the living most high God to whom you and you and you and you and I will give an account. Now, in these very intense and sobering verses, the writer of Hebrews is no doubt primarily referring to apostates. And if that word is unfamiliar to you, an apostate is a man or a woman who had once claimed to be a follower of Christ. They had heard and understood the gospel message, and they had even witnessed the power of God's word and God's spirit. But then they decided that trusting and obeying Christ really wasn't their cup of tea. They said, no, thank you to the knowledge of the truth. And they returned to following their sinful appetite. 
verses 26 through 31, primarily referring to apostates, yes, but we mustn't miss the personal language that the writer of Hebrews uses in verse 26. For if we go on sitting deliberately, do we see how he applies, he humbly applies this warning to himself. And he applies this warning to himself right alongside the Jewish Christians. This group of believers that he was writing to who were on the brink of apostasy. The people he's writing to were, they are on the brink of apostasy. Now some of us might wonder, in what way? In what way were these Jewish Christians on the brink of apostasy? I mean, we don't see them. They don't seem to be denying Christ by running headlong down the road of overt unrighteousness. Well, no, they weren't. But they were denying Christ by going back to the old covenant that Christ had died to bring to completion. There are two ways to commit apostasy, unrighteousness and self-righteousness. Let me try to illustrate this for a second. Imagine that you, in order to bring your friend out from under a prison sentence that he rightfully deserved, imagine that you personally served Every last requirement of his sentence on his behalf, you fulfilled it. You brought it to completion. You checked every box that needed to be checked. And by doing so, you arranged for him, you secured for him a new arrangement whereby he was free to enter society under new terms or under a new covenant, if you will. Now imagine after doing all of that, your friend said, thanks, but no thanks. And he insisted going back underneath the previous arrangement to serve the sentence himself. It's a mockery. This is what the Jewish Christians were doing by insisting on going back to a covenant that no longer existed. Instead of rooting their sanctification, their sanctification, not just their justification, instead of rooting their sanctification in the completed work of Christ, they were rooting it in the law of Moses. Instead of trusting the Holy Spirit of grace, who writes God's all-encompassing laws upon our hearts, they were going back to the 613-point to-do list of the Mosaic law. Now, that might sound innocent at first, might even sound admirable to some of us. But in doing this, the writer of Hebrews is explaining what they are doing by doing this in verse 29. They were trampling underfoot the Son of God. They were profaning the sanctifying blood of the new covenant. And they were outraging the Holy Spirit of grace whose heart-written law is genuine love producing joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. 
in verses 26 through 31, we deduce there, are not, there is not just one, but two roads to apostasy. If you and I knowingly and remorselessly run headlong down either road into rampant unrighteousness or rampant self-righteousness, insisting that we're going we're gonna to go back to a covenant that relied on both God and ourselves, apostasy. There isn't a sacrifice in the cosmos that will atone for us if we do that. We may not be tempted to return to the old covenant. And conversely, you and I may not be tempted into racketeering or drug trafficking or money laundering. But let's really put the shoes of this text on for a second. What are you and I tempted toward? What sorts of things are we likely to deliberately continue to entertain because they really don't seem all that bad to us? Our chest-puffing pride and self-congratulation. Our idolatrous preoccupation with success, status, security, wealth, material comfort, possessions. What about this? What about our slothful lack of self-control when it comes to entertainment and food and drink? Yes, even in the church. What about our slanderous and gossipy undercutting of blood-bought brothers and sisters in Christ? What about our self-inflated bitterness and our unwillingness to forgive people who have hurt our feelings? What about our iron-fisted impatience with our kids? Or what about our willing blindedness toward the needs of others, toward neediness in general, toward the wayward, toward the outcast? We mustn't let our guards down against these things, church. For if we go on sinning deliberately... Holy Spirit, awaken in us. Give us understanding of the things that don't seem all that bad to us, but we are deliberately entertaining day after day after day after day. Awaken us to these things. We must be the kind of men and women who are courageous enough to take inventory of our lives, yes? We must be courageous enough to examine and to really weigh out our patterns of behavior, our patterns of thinking and speaking and doing. And we've got to be courageous enough to ask and answer this question. Are you ready? Is this conduct, is this way of thinking that I find myself entertaining, is this way of doing and speaking, is this conduct reflective of the gospel I claim to believe. Namely, that I am forgiven, yes and amen forever, but I have also been freed from the enslavement to these things, and I am to walk now in that freedom. I am now to walk in the good and godly life apart from these sins, and yet I keep returning to these sins like a dog returns to his vomit. 
Is this conduct of my life reflective of the gospel I claim to believe? Does this behavior reflect the forgiveness and freedom that I have been granted in Christ? Or has the serpent quietly convinced me that my sin isn't a big deal? That's what he did in the garden. That's what he's been doing every day since is convincing men and women, well-intending men and women, that what they're about to do or what they've just done isn't that big a deal. Everyone else is doing it. You will not surely die if you eat of the fruit. Okay, okay. I think that probably, starting with myself, we all need to repent of sins that we have grown accustomed to and, and we're treating them lightly. I think that I need to repent from my angry impatience that I return to every day with my wife and my kids, they are the first ones to receive. They're the first ones where the wick of my patience has just been spent. And I, if I'm going to unleash, it's, it's on them. Chris, do you not believe that that sin put Jesus on the cross? And that, in fact, you've been freed from the enslavement of that sin. I think I need to repent of that. And I don't know what yours is, brother or sister. I can tell you one thing that's just been really hitting my heart as I've prepared this is the malicious gossip that runs like kryptonite poison in the church. Maybe we, you and I, should be courageous enough to find a brother or sister that we trust in our community group and tell him or her, brother, I... Man, lust is an ongoing thing for me, dude. I have a hard time with my eyes and my thoughts. And I'm telling you this because I'm going to ask you, Lord, uh, to, friend, to, to, to walk beside me and to, to ask me and to, and to, and to stir me. And to, 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 to ask me questions that no one else is asking me, please. Help me. Help me put this to death already. I wonder if we're courageous enough to do that. This is involved in the task of endurance. We must treat our sins seriously, point one. Number two, we must face affliction or prepare to face affliction faithfully. One of the reasons why these Jewish Christians were shrinking back from the new covenant Christianity and returning to old covenant Judaism is because Christianity, not Judaism, Christianity was being met with fierce opposition, likely in Rome, where these brothers and sisters in Christ lived. Indeed, the gospel message, the gospel message, Christ crucified and resurrected to save sinners, is not a message that the world wants to hear. It's not. Just this week on Twitter, in light of it being Pride Month, 
a woman who goes by the name Godless Granny. She ranted about the hatefulness of the gospel. She said, if the penalty for sin is death, then calling a person sinful at all is an act of hate against them because it's like saying that that person deserves death. Well, yeah. <laughs> the wages of sin is death. You and I and all human beings are not autonomous creatures who are self-existing and self-sustaining and self-determining. We were created by a holy God to live like him and to live for him and to live with him and our willful rebellion against that deserves death. The wages of sin is death. But finish the verse. She forgot that part. I'm so glad that a faithful brother or sister communicated that part to her. But there's, that's the bad news that makes the good news so good. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God to us is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. <laughs> what makes this gospel message that makes our hearts leap with joy, what makes this gospel message so repulsive to the world? Well, that, brothers and sisters, is the mystery of the Holy Spirit, the causation of our new birth. And we're not gonna go there right now. But I pray that as we have opportunity to give reason for the hope that is inside of us, that the Holy Spirit would accompany that and make new the hearts that are to receive the good news because otherwise this gospel is repulsive. This gospel is repulsive. In verses 32 through 34, the writer of Hebrews recalls the time when the Jewish Christians themselves had first heard and believed this gospel message. Look what happened right out of the gate. Some of them had been shamed in the public sphere, humiliated, mistreated. Maybe some of them had been called out onto the city streets and fired from their jobs or been cut off from their family members or kicked out of their homes. After these Jewish Christians had first heard and believed the gospel, some of them had done jail time for it. Because there's something about believing the gospel that, well, if you believe in your heart and confess with your, there is a, if you're a true born again believer, you kind of can't help but tell people about it. And that's what gets us in so much trouble. The world doesn't care if you believe, you do you. But the moment that you have enough compassion on me to urge me, to turn from my sin and to trust and to receive the free gift of God's grace. That I, now, whoa, that's repulse. I'm sickened by that. Some of these Jewish Christians had done jail time. Some of them, look, had had their homes and possessions ransacked and vandalized. We think that a little bit of flack on Twitter you know, I see Christians walking around with their tails between their legs, like, oh man, somebody called me an idiot. 
You just wait. I think the oven's going to get turned up. I think it is being turned up right now. And yet, these Christians, these Jewish Christians back in first century Rome, they faced all of this at first joyfully. 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 We're reading that correctly. How? How does one face the ransacking of their home, the vandalization of their property, vandalism, whatever the tense is. How does one face those things on account of Christ joyfully? Second half of 34. They knew. They knew they had a better possession. An eternal, abiding possession that Satan himself could not tear them from. Their hearts were so fulfilled by and so fixed on Christ, so confident that he really would return to usher them into an everlasting kingdom that no mind can imagine. They were so fixed on that that it utterly eclipsed their present temporal sufferings. And those are some pretty ferocious sufferings. To have your, pl- your, your, your possessions completely plundered, thrown into prison, openly shamed and ridiculed and fired in public, stripped from your family and or friends. No. No. Count it all joy. You want to know why? Because the possession that I have been sealed for the eternity that's written on my heart, that eternal one, he is coming for me. And he is going, he's already unlocked by his blood the gates into that kingdom when heaven and earth collide and creation is made new and I will run with him by his grace all of my days. In verses 35 and 36, the writer of Hebrews urges them, don't throw away that confidence. Don't do it. Press on. Endure. And this ties in to earlier, don't neglect to meet together. Encourage one another on this note. Stir one another up on this note. The day of Christ's return is near. Verses 37 and 38, a prophecy of the prophet Habakkuk. The coming one is coming. Hear this. Hear this, brother or sister. I don't, I don't know how downcast your soul is or how, how, how discouraged you are, how, how stressful work life is right now. I don't know what you're facing. Maybe you are facing some, some affliction in the workplace. Hear, hear this. Jesus is coming. He is coming as real as your hand is right now, even real, more real than he, he is. Hold on, hold on, endure. Don't throw away your confidence. Don't do it. He won't be a second late. He's coming. He'll be right on time. Verse 39, we are not those, we are not of those who shrink back. Don't you love the writer of Hebrews confidence in the, in the people he's writing to? They're flirting with apostasy. But we are not that. No, 
we are not. Repent. Repent and relinquish yourself into and onto the completed work of Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection. We are not those who shrink back because of affliction. By faith, our souls are being and will be preserved. You and I may not be facing the level of affliction that these Jewish Christians were facing, but we are facing some. We are. And we will face more. I am sure of it. In fact, uh, there's an on-campus publish, uh, publishing there's an on-campus newspaper here, our very own College of Worcester, and a columnist wrote in and talked about the absolutely hate-spewing, bigot-filled confession of faith of Oaks Church right down the road from them. I can't help but smile because, A, I'm praying for Alex DeLong who wrote that, and B, it's a bit of a badge of honor that we are starting to be seen as those who stand upon God's word. It's coming. Alex DeLong is his name, by the way. Don't contact him. Pray for him. When your alarm goes off every hour, if you do that weird honky thing with me, pray for Alex DeLong that the Holy Spirit would give him a new heart and that someone, maybe one of us, would cross paths with him preach the gospel and see him relinquish his life to Christ. Jesus tells us in John 15 that we will be hated by the world as much as he was. We need to anticipate it. It's all right. We're in this together. We need to plan for it. We mustn't shrink back. And to shrink back is this. When we taste just a drop of the costliness of following Christ and then we decide that our social status is more important to us, then we decide our material comforts are more important or our business relationships or our job security, when we taste a tiny bit of the costliness of following Christ and then we decide, you know what, no, I'd rather keep the things of this earth than follow Christ any further. That's shrinking back. That's apostasy. And we are not the, of those who shrink back. So let me ask you this question as we wrap up. Brother or sister, does your faith need to be rekindled this morning? Does your heart need to be reminded that a renewed, physical, glorified world is coming? With Christ, as he rolls back the curtain of eternity, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind can conceive what he is about to reveal. Do you need to be reminded of that this morning? By the power of Holy Spirit, we will endure against the internal threats of our own sin and the external threats of the world and affliction that would lead us to maybe walk away from our sin. No, no, it won't happen. This is the task of endurance, and thank God we have not been called to this on our own. You know what? We've been given, we've been filled with God the Holy Spirit himself. Greater is he who is in us than he that is in the world, and we've been given one another. We have one another to walk beside, to face sin with, to face affliction with. 
We have each other. I think that there is a day coming when we start to face a little bit more affliction that we're going to covet this gathering all the more. I don't know that any of us will ever miss out on the meeting. We'll just clamor to be together so much to be encouraged. So what better reminder that we must treat sin seriously than at the Lord's table? At the Lord's table, when we together partake of the bread and the cup, which represents Christ's crucified body and his poured out blood, at the Lord's table, we do this, when we do this, we proclaim to one another and with one another. This is what we do when we come forward to participate in the Lord's Supper. We proclaim to and with one another that Christ was crucified and we have received forgiveness from the penalty of sin. We have been set free from the enslaving power of sin and we will soon be separated from the very essence and the presence of sin. At the Lord's table, when we take together, brothers and sisters in Christ, in just a few moments, it's like you are proclaiming to me and I am proclaiming to you, your heavenly Father has placed every single one of your sins, past, present, and future, upon his Son, who died as your substitute on the cross. And now, by faith in him, your heavenly Father has taken the perfect righteousness of Christ's sinless obedience, and he has wrapped you in it like a present. What better motivator to treat sin seriously than at the Lord's table. If you are a follower of Christ, I would invite you to take of the bread and the cup in a posture of sincere repentance and celebratory confidence. Christ did not stay dead on the cross. He is alive. And what better reminder that we can endure affliction faithfully than at the Lord's table. When we repentantly set aside our sins that cling to us, the writer of Hebrews writes in chapter 12, let us run the race that is set before us with endurance. That's the word he uses as we come to the Lord's table to participate in the new covenant meal so Jesus said it was. Let's look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. He endured the greatest affliction the world will ever know on the cross. And he lived to tell the tale. He lived to tell about it. He did so because his eye was set on the joyous future reality of being resurrected in glory at the right hand of the Father with an army of sons and daughters that the Father had adopted in Jesus' name. So, if you are a follower of Jesus, this new covenant meal is for you. If you are not, I don't know what else I can say except for, oh, I urge you, repent from your sin and trust Christ. He was a substitute on the cross for sinners who would come to him. 
Come to him, put your faith in him, and your every sin will be forgotten by the Father, and you, blood-bought, will be brought into an eternal inheritance that you couldn't shake if you tried. Believe the good news. Believe it. And if you believe it today, come and talk to me. Find someone. Talk to someone. And we want to get you further plugged in. Let's pray. And while we do, I would invite our communion servers to come forward. I would invite Etrakis to come forward. And he's going to play and sing while we participate. Let's pray. Great God in heaven. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We praise you for your son, Jesus. We exult in the name of your son, Jesus. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would bring to our minds any sin that we've gotten comfortable with. No matter how innocent or respectable it might seem, no matter how many people are doing it, if we've gotten comfortable with something, that means there is a, a bit where we are just acting in it deliberately. Oh, God, spare us from that. For the glory of your name, spare us from that. For the salvation of our hearts, spare us from that. Lord, would you bring to mind anything that we've gotten comfortable with, and Lord, when it comes to mind, may we confess it, lay it at the foot of the cross where it is drenched with blood. And Lord, may we then take of this new covenant supper knowing with great joy that our every sin has been washed from us and that there is nothing now that stands between us and you. There never will be. There is no condemnation. We thank you for Jesus. Pray for any in here who is not following after and immersed in the blood of Jesus that you would convict and lead them to repentance and faith, Lord. And let this all be to the glory of your name. Father, Spirit, Son, we pray. Amen.